RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. The Trek Files, Season 3, Episode 17, Code of Honor, First Draft Notes, April 30th, 1987. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Well, welcome back, Star Trek fans. All you background fans, canonistas, and I say that lovingly. And by the way, I've always said canonista and tech head lovingly. I just want you to know recently I've seen inclinations that canonista is taking on some negative connotations. Canon Klingons, maybe a little bit too roughly. I say that for anyone who enjoys keeping up the guardrails of what Star Trek's background is. So that's what I mean when I say canonistas lovingly. But most of all, of course, all of you Trekophiles spell with an F. Welcome back. Stepping into a little bit of a controversial realm this week, we've got a lovely document that, you know, very typical of the kind of story notes document that's generated for all Star Treks, especially in these early days of Next Generation, the way things were done then. I have a special guest in to talk about it, but first, just take a listen and read along, too, as you always can at our Facebook page, The Trek Files. Take a listen. I'll be right back with our guest. Finally, a first draft that works. Powers and Baron actually took our notes and wrote the story as discussed. Miracle of miracles. I loved it. I feel it's good Star Trek, and most of my notes are nitpicking, lint-gathering, hair-splitting. Well, you get the idea. Overall, it's a fast-paced, interesting character study of a tricky diplomatic situation placed in a countercultural context. Oops, I already said it works for me. On to the nits, as follows. Code of Honor. <laughs> Code of Honor. Yes, um, some irony here in this memo. Again, early Next Generation, guys. It's early 1987. The Next Generation has not aired. They're bankrolling episodes. They barely cast the shows. They have not shot the pilot. The first few episodes are in production. You longtime listeners know we're, we're waiting through a lot of these early think tank memos. Well, the think tank has now expanded to a writing staff. And a production staff earnestly getting a show ready to shoot, a few shows in, and Code of Honor. I dare say, as I look at our guest for this week, longtime Star Trek fan and paycheck earner, <laughs> Dave Rossi. Welcome back, Dave. Thank you very much, Larry. Hey, there's very few, uh, you know, we could say Spock's brain for one reason. I mean, there are very few... You know, phrases you could say from Star Trek that instantly conjure up an, you know, an ooh or an icky. Yeah, and the children shall leave. And the children shall leave, famously. Mm -hmm. But hey, the Federation banner. (laughs) Uh, um, But you know, yeah, we we joke about that, redeeming feature. Uh, Code of Honor is one of those moments. And, you know, early in the show, early in the next generation, people are earnestly trying to reestablish Star Trek. It was not their intention to have an early show be something that was going to become as clouded and, oh, my God, what were they thinking as time went by. But there's your adage. But there's your old adage that uh, no one sets out to make a bad show. That's right. And uh, oftentimes the transformation from from script to actual um, episode is – perilous (laughs) (laughs) 
Right. I mean, here's an example where obviously Gene read the script and thought, wow, this is wonderful. Um, and he ticks off a lot of things here. This is Star Trek. This is, you know, the great moments for our captain. Uh, but we're going to flesh out these new characters here. Exactly. Right. Here's our new security chief. And what's it. And even evoking a little bit of a muck time, I think. Yeah. You know. Oh, there was a golden moment. Maybe we can recapture without being on the nose about, oh, look, it's another ripoff from – that was the knock on early Next Generation. Oh, oh sure. it's just original Naked series. now. Yeah, You're yeah. right, sure. But that was up front. That was an obvious homage. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, in all the series, especially in the days of 26 episodes, I, you know, I can hear the writers now. They'd all get to – especially, you know, the seventh inning stretch or whatever, that, that – that third quarter after the holidays and before spring break, and everyone's exhausted, and a lot of the clinkers, you know, of the seasons over the years uh, would come from that time. Fall that area, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Aquiel and, I mean, go on down the line. Um, <laughs> but all of them, you know, there are, there are less there are less popular, there are less well-developed shows, shows that didn't meet their potential or had a production quirk. But, boy, both Code of Honor. Modern eyes look at Code of Honor and say, what were they thinking here about the, the, the whole racial issue and the stereotyping? And, yeah. and, and when you think that this crew, the people putting out this show, were some of the most sensitive, socially aware and sensitive people. Absolutely. I mean, you're, Even at you're, the time. You're looking, at, uh, you're looking at a man who put the first you know, person of color on the bridge of a starship in the 1960s. Um, and it's not, that, it's not that he's not being sensitive uh, to it. I think he... Is to a certain extent, but uh, but yeah, it's just weird how this all came off. And and again, in this this time, this is early first season. They're getting their legs as far as their process. And in these days, the writing development process with the staff, as opposed to like the Michael Piller era with a story break and a whiteboard and everyone working that way, they would all read scripts and then send memos around, which seemed very paper intensive <laughs> and time intensive to me. It wears me out. But here's Herb Wright, who was a producer twice on Next Generation. He came in first season, was kind of involved in that merry-go-round of chaos on the bridge with the Mageless era. But they're all writing notes back and forth on all the scripts and all the drafts when they come in and people taking pitches. And what's amazing is uh, he – there's a there's a paragraph buried down here, you know, where Herb says, apart from the story itself, after discussion with Morris, and that's how I said Maurice Hurley for years until Rick Berman corrected me. It's Morris Hurley. Morris Hurley, yeah. Or Maury. But after discussion with Morris, I'm inclined to agree and have some worry about using blacks in this story. Despite all our best efforts to have them be ritualistic and regal, there's still a stereotype in the black man stealing the white woman. And then your favorite line here. Artasha's Faye Ray Blonde from the photos I've seen. And, and another, it's, like, you, it's hard to be sympathetic here when you're not being sympathetic in your sympathy. Yeah, it's a. <laughs> <laughs> Let me dissect it for a moment. Uh, no, it just seems like a really crass way of addressing this, uh, this issue. Uh, uh, it really took me aback reading it. Yeah. But here in the mid, it's the kind of thing that. Afterwards, people all say, what were you thinking, guys? What were you thinking? And I know some of the blame here goes with, with the way they were costumed also. And Bill Tice was a first-season costumer. It, it's sometimes, and I've seen this over the years, sometimes one word in a script and a designer goes off and no one thinks about it, but that, that one word sends them in a direction and then come back and think, well, uh, maybe that wasn't the best. You know, right. By the time all the elements are put together, sometimes right. they gel really well, sometimes in the crush of the moment – Prop set Absolutely. costuming may not gel as well as you could have. And 
maybe that's what happened here. But I'm amazed that in all the comments about the story and from everyone that comments came from, looking back later, you go, aha. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, there was a glimmer here. You say, yes, exactly. You, what, listen to this. But, you know, they're trying to get scripts out and, and they're I, – I still think some of the, the glow of my time was underlining part of this here with uh, – and they want, to, they want to get Denise – Denise, and he says blonde. This is April 30th. The, the casting is just now happening. Right. So I think they're excited by the possibility. And, no, I agree. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but boy. So for folks who talk about, geez, code of honor, guys, what happened? It's amazing. This is what caught me. This is what stopped me, why I pulled this document out of the file for a show is, is look, here was a caution amid, amid the, hey, we got to just make the story work, you know, the drama and the characterization. But again, this is early in the process. They're still fleshing out the characters. They're still evolving. They're trying to find stories that would work. This was going to be the big Tasha Yar well, story the, for her. Look at the first line of the memo. Finally, a first draft that works. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, again, it just goes to uh, uh, the best intentions. But wow, sometimes you read things and you just some, and it can go both ways. Sometimes you can read a script and think this is going to be the most amazing script ever, and you see it produced and you're like, what the hell happened? And you can read a script and say this will never work, and it comes out to be brilliant. Yeah. And and let's let's talk about some of those. But I just before we leave this, it's there's a whole tangent here that we can see evolution. People read on down here. They're talking about the, he's making fun of the Ferengi Flash. Aside from the Ferengi still being you know, early on and undeveloped, people today say, "Oh, there's no Ferengi mention in Code of Honor." That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. it, was, it must have been a whole beast there story was. that they dropped. Yeah. So here's a note that people listen to. <laughs> right. <laughs> here's, a, here's here's where the process worked. Maybe. Uh, yeah. There's there's unfortunate things happen. It's there's a tendency, and I want to get into this. There's a tendency of of and you know all up in, right up until today with Discovery, people forget that. These episodes, even though they're Star Trek, um, they are the product of human beings. Mm-hmm. It's true. <laughs> and sometimes, despite the best of intentions, you know, when it, when it clicks, when the well-oiled machine is humming along on all cylinders, the writing cylinder and the production cylinder, it's amazing. And but it doesn't always happen that way. No, and they're also, you know, you are submerged in the schedule of doing a television show, and it is no easy feat to do. I can tell you. Uh, and I came into the show when it was a well-oiled machine. I, I can't imagine being in the pressure cooker that was these early mm-hmm. days. Um, and the pressure that's on them. And, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. To try and make this thing work. And this is before it's aired, before, I mean, you know, this is a crazy time. So, you know. Yeah. You, I, they haven't even seen actors interacting and getting a flow and a chemistry exactly. for that. Right. Yeah. No, and, you know, it goes on down through. Uh, people, people can read this and realize, again, that he's reacting to a draft. Lots of things. The Ferengi are gone. Uh, you can get all all through that without having the draft right here with it. It's I know it's a little hard, but you can give an idea. You can get an idea of, um, especially apparently they changed their planet from Krellisia or the Krellis to uh, Ligon, mm-hmm. Ligon too. But you know that, that's a that's a name thing. Or that was something else. Or that was something else. <laughs> Who yeah. knows? Yeah, it's part of the Ferengi subplot. But no, I that that one paragraph just jumped out at me, and and for an answer to people that say, you know, how did this happen? Um, but it's in that crush. It's in that crush of time and pressure, and especially here, we're talking about it was not well along. It was still trying to get up and running, and for him to have a little 
you know, a little red flag go off that maybe should have been listened to a little, a little more closely. But now you were, you were sitting there in the bullpen for years outside Mary's office, outside Rick's yeah. office. Uh, I mean, I can think of one or two shows just from talking to everybody over the years that, um, that have, that either went one way or the other, right? They were the, yeah. like you mentioned, the bomb that worked or the winner that bombed. Right. I, I, you know, when the new scripts would come out, I remember we would, uh, there, there were uh, one, uh, five of us in a bullpen area between assistants to the producers and PAs, and, and we would all read the scripts together. It's kind of a, you know, sit there and eat your lunch and read the script. Uh, it was there. It was there, right? <laughs> it was how we all kind of caught up, and then we'd talk about it, you know, just yeah. for a little while, but... Uh, uh, I remember when Darmok came out, and we all read the script, and at the end of reading that script, we turned to each other and thought, this is the worst piece of nonsense we've ever read. This will never work. This guy, this crazy, what is he saying? We don't know. I mean, it was it was palpable, the the... the the feeling of oh this is a stinker, <laughs> and when that episode finally came out, it was amazing. We were all flabbergasted that we all loved it so much, and from the script couldn't make heads or tails of it. And then you get a script like you know Masks, which was kind of an interesting read. But, those are both Joe Minoskis. Yes, I yes. know. I know. <laughs> uh, so, and, but but again, it's, it was a high concept idea that yeah. it just did not work. He Joe had incredible ideas. Sometimes you could capture them on paper and on a stage in a camera, and sometimes you couldn't. Yeah, I, again, I'm a comic book guy too, and I often refer to Joe Manoski as the Grant Morrison of uh, the Star Trek world. So if you if you know comics and you know Grant Morrison, you know Joe Manoski. Yeah, uh, well, well, you can Google Grant. I I remember yesterday's Enterprise was the one that was just going to be the cluster F because it had to be moved up in schedule for a lot of hands shooting. touching it. Uh, Everybody took an act home over Thanksgiving holiday. They loved that. Had to work over the holiday, came back and just thought it was going to be a disaster, and, and it became yesterday's enterprise. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know? And uh, you never know when that's going to happen. I mean, yeah. you really don't have control of it. It's, it's there's a magic that happens or a magic that doesn't, and and uh, either way, you get very uh, uh, visceral reaction. Yeah, and the modern the modern era now of the third the, the small season, right? The 10, 8, 10, 12, 13 is supposed to help that. I know, you know, Discovery is ever-evolving. The second season is much more subtle, I think everyone would agree, than the first season. First season was born kind of in a baptism of fire with a lot of chaos going on. A lot of change. Chaos on the bridge, number two. But, um, and I know that's a big relief for everybody, writers on down, these shorter seasons, even though fans want... I want my 26 again, not <laughs> not 13. But. Well, it's interesting, and, and the fact that this is a serialized show now. I mean, mm-hmm. how do you feel about that? Do you think that helps or hinders the show? I It's a different – I think it's taken everybody a little bit. Even though we go back and look at DS9 and say, well, serialized there, but that the show didn't start off that way. Correct. They, they had five seasons to get into those characters before they went into serialized right. shows, and it was all about the plot, not plot and – Introducing characters at the same time, so it's. I think it's taken creators and the audience, much yeah. less fans, a little while to get used to it. And it's a brave new world, but um, and there, they, again, it, it, you know, you have to find your feet on these shows. I mean, it's it's no easy task to simply come out of the gate and be brilliant. It just doesn't work that way. And and I think fans, audiences tend to think when they see a finished product, they think they see nothing but one straight lineal 
nonprofits line. Right. Right. <laughs> when there are a lot of factors that went into it and a lot of a lot of hands in it. But anyway, here's a peek inside one of the most infamous code of honor. And uh, yeah, this is how it happens, kids. Yeah, it's a stinker. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to number four. Listen to your note on page four. Herb was right. Uh, thanks again, Dave. No, oh, thank you. We'll see you back uh, soon. Great. I think soon. <laughs> The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Additional production by Ken Ray. All these documents are available at facebook.com slash thetrekfiles. Now, for more great podcasts, check out podcast.roddenberry.com. And for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47. That's me at larrynemachek.com. Trek well, everybody. podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network